0: Good morning. Welcome to our Sunday school time. Our study of the Psalms, our summer in the Psalms. Our teacher this morning has informed me that he needs every last second of our Sunday school hour. So I'm going to do my best to get everybody around. And then while you're finding your seats, I'll talk. That way you're all ready to go once, once Jeff comes up. As we make our way through the summer in the Psalms, we've mentioned that We're going to have teachers that are working through in a rotation and a team. And so when it's men who may be well known to our church, but haven't been up here teaching regularly, we'll probably just say a word of introduction. And that's the point this morning. It's not to over formalize anything, but it's just to remind you who these guys are. They're going to serve us. Jeff Brown's a a care group leader in our church, faithful servant in our church. He's taught for us on Sunday school before. And I can assure you, he has spent a lot of time in Psalm 73. Uh, And so uh, just really looking forward to having Jeff kick off Officially, our expositions in Psalm was Psalm 73 this morning. Jeff, thankful for you. Come and teach us.
1: Good, good morning. I uh, told my role that we either needed to start on time or I needed to learn to talk faster. And I'm not very confident in my ability to do the latter, so we're going to try to start on time. Um, Happy Father's Day to the dads and uh, grandfathers in the room. Um, This will be a um, Father's Day that I will remember for a long time. Just the opportunity to teach this morning is... Uh, special, um, and I think, I don't know if they're all arriving on time, but I, I think all five of my children will be here this morning. That's two by marriage, for those of you who are, who are trying to count fast with me, um, as well as my grandchildren. So a really special, special time for this dad. Um, before we look at our psalm uh, today, and we're, we're going to study Psalm 73 together, I wanted to just make one brief remark about uh, the lesson that Myrol delivered in the first week. I wasn't here then, so I didn't, didn't get to listen to it live, but I did look at his handout. Um, and he gave um, some recommendations about how to study the psalms, one of which was to consider each psalm in its entirety and I thought about that advice um, and tried to apply it to myself. And I realized that when I read the Psalms, I frequently think of them as a collection of a thousand verses and not 150 books. And so when I'm in the Psalms, reading the Psalms uh, any given morning, I frequently just start reading verses. And I'm on the hunt for my favorite verse of that morning. And that sounds like Christians, doesn't it? We all have our favorite verses. In fact, some of us have so many favorite verses that the word favorite becomes a little watered down. Um, But I can assure you that um, I'm taking Myril's advice to heart as I've studied Psalm 73 now for hours uh, in context uh, I've learned the benefit of that. You see, for me, one of my favorite verses uh, for a lifetime has been Psalm 73, verse 25. I love that verse. It's highlighted in my Bible. It's underlined. Um, but I usually ignored the rest of Psalm 73, quite honestly. And so um, Myral's advice is good advice. I'm taking it to heart. Um, Psalm 73, that's where we're going to be this morning. Let me just start with a word of prayer and then we'll look at that psalm together in detail. Uh, Father, we pause for just a minute before we open your word because we know we need your help. And so, uh, Father, I pray uh, for the help of the Holy Spirit in this moment. I pray that the Holy Spirit, uh, Father, would give me clarity of thought and that uh, the Holy Spirit would help me to speak uh, the words of your truth accurately. And I pray, Father, for each of us uh, this morning that we would have ears uh, to hear, but that we would listen not just with our ears, but with our heart as well. We pray for your instruction this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Psalm 73, I think, is sometimes an underappreciated psalm, but I hope this morning that as we study it together that you'll learn what I learned. It is a psalm that is filled with rich truth and all kinds of personal application. Psalm 73 was written by a man named Asaph, and you may remember that Myril, when he introduced the psalms to us a couple of weeks ago, noted that Asaph wrote 12 of the psalms. He wrote the one that we're going to study this morning. He wrote Psalm 50, and he wrote Psalms 74 through 83. Outside of uh, the psalms that he wrote, Scripture tells us very little about the person Asaph. What little we know about Asaph, we find in the books of First and Second Chronicles, and I'm not going to have you turn to much Scripture. In fact, not any Scripture this morning, other than Psalm 73 and First uh, Chronicles chapter 16. So, if you can turn to First Chronicles chapter 16 first, I want to look at largely one verse. Um, we'll look at verse 4 and uh, maybe go into verse 5 a little bit. This verse is brief, um, but I think it provides some helpful information about this man, Asaph. 1 Chronicles 16.4, it says he, and he is referring to King David, it says, He, David, appointed some of the Levites as ministers before the ark of the Lord, even to celebrate and to thank and to praise the Lord God of Israel, Asaph, the chief. And so it's a brief verse, but it gives us uh, some important facts uh, about Asaph that help us understand this man and give us context as we study Psalm 73 together. So right off the bat, we learn that Asaph was a contemporary of David. He was a Levite priest And he was appointed by David as a minister. And we understand elsewhere in 1 Chronicles that Asaph was really a minister of music or worship for his Israelite community. So right there, contemporary of David, Levi priest, minister of music, we can understand how perhaps writing psalms came naturally for Asaph. And he wrote 12 of them. But most importantly, Asaph had a mission statement as a minister of worship. His mission statement was to help his Israelite community to celebrate God, to thank God, and to praise the Lord God of Israel. And I want us to keep that mission statement in the back of our mind as we study this psalm. Psalm 73 itself tells us something about the person of Asaph. As you study the psalm, you'll learn that Asaph was an introspective person. He was somebody who was able to look deeply into his heart and at himself. He was somebody who thought deeply about his faith. He was not only introspective, but he was honest about himself. The psalm includes a number of times where Asaph confesses either sin or personal weakness that he saw in himself So he was honest, and he was also a transparent man. The psalm gives us a view right into the depths of Asaph's heart. We see the depths of his feelings and the depths of his thoughts. It's atypical to have an application come out of introductory comments. But I'm going to interject an application right now. You see, the combination of being introspective, thinking deeply about yourself, and being honest in that introspection is not a character trait that is common to most men. It's not common to me. I'm guessing it's not common to you. But it was true of Asaph And so as you think about Asaph, I want you to think about that character trait that he had. I think it's a good character trait for us to emulate. Psalm 73, just a quick overview. Psalm 73 is about the goodness of God. But it's not principally about God's goodness. It's principally about the man Asaph and the perspective that he had about God's goodness. Psalm 73 gives us a picture of a crisis of faith that Asaph encountered. It tells us about a spiritual journey that Asaph went on. It was a spiritual journey where he asked questions about God's goodness. It was a spiritual journey where he doubted his faith. But by the end of the journey, we'll see that Asaph came to... uh, view God's goodness in a higher way than when the journey began. He began to appreciate God's goodness more fully. The psalm is presented in three different scenes. They're like acts of a play. Um, I've found that studying the psalm and I believe teaching the psalm is easier for me if I don't take the whole psalm at one bite. And so I'm going to be very methodical in my approach today. We're going to look at one scene, then another, and then another. We're going to be very methodical. Um, I did have handouts. Hopefully you all found a handout in the back. If not, you can feel free to go back and find one now. Um, Right now my mentors are looking at the handout and going, that is way too many bullet points, Jeff. But let me assure you, I only have three points this morning, and the rest is just additional help. Uh, This morning, my hope is that as we study Psalm 73 together, we will see three perspectives concerning the goodness of God. Three perspectives concerning the goodness of God. An earthly perspective, a changing perspective, and an eternal perspective. So really only three points that you need to keep track of. With that introduction, let's start with scene one. Scene one is presented in verses one through 14. This is Asaph's earthly perspective of God's goodness. And as we read through that psalm together, we'll do that in a second, I want you to look for these elements as we read through it. These are key elements of scene one. Asaph's statement of conviction, um, Asaph's crisis of faith, And then two confessions, one that he makes, one that's embedded in there and he perhaps doesn't make, uh, of sin, envy, and self-pity. So look for these as we read verses 1 through 14 together, and I'll read those now. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat, they are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them, Their eye bulges from fatness, their imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know, and is there knowledge with the Most High?" Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease, they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. Asaph begins the psalm with the word, Surely. Surely is an important word in Psalm 73. Asaph uses it three times. This is the first. When he uses the word surely, Asaph is intending to express something that he's certain about. He's certain about the assertion that he makes following the word surely. And so in this case, we find Asaph expressing that surely God is good to Israel. Surely God is good to the pure in heart. This is not just a poetic beginning to his psalm. This is foundational to Asaph's faith. It's an anchor to his soul. He has a deep, deep conviction about this truth of God. In fact, it's what is behind Asaph's mission statement as he leads his congregation in the worship of God. That thought is behind his mission statement. Others in his community believed this too. Asaph was not alone. In the familiar words of Psalm 1, we read this. It says, Blessed is the one who does not walk with the ungodly, nor stand with sinners, nor sit with scorners. Psalm 1 goes on to say that whatever that godly person does will prosper. You see, others besides Asaph and his community believed this truth. Psalm 1 goes on to declare that the opposite is true, that the ungodly are like chaff, and that the way of the ungodly will perish. And although not stated explicitly in Psalm 73, Asaph believed this as well. He believed that God was good to the pure in heart But he didn't believe that God's blessing was on the wicked. This was a conviction that Asaph had and others in his community had because God had promised this, hadn't he? They believed it because they believed that it was a promise of God. In Deuteronomy 28, God had called his people to diligently obey the Lord your God. He had called them to be careful to do all his commandments. Do you know what that sounds like to me? That sounds like pure in heart. And God promised blessing to those who did obey. This is from Deuteronomy 28 again. It says, "...the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body, in the offspring of your beast, and in the produce of your ground." the Lord will open for you his good storehouse, the heavens, to give you rain to your land in its season and to bless the work of your hand. Conversely, in Deuteronomy 28, we find that God did not promise blessing to those who did not obey. In fact, he promised curses. God said that If you do not obey the Lord your God to observe all his commandments, the Lord will send upon you curses, confusion, and rebuke in all you undertake to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly on account of your evil deeds." So this was a conviction of Asaph's. It was a conviction of those around him. They believed it because they believed that God promised it. And if we're honest, we share that conviction too, don't we? We believe in our heart that the wicked should suffer the consequences of their evil deeds and that blessing should arise from faithful obedience to God's word. We believe that too. Let's read on. Asaph says in verse 2, he says, But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. Asaph was in a spiritual crisis. He hadn't fallen away from his faith, but his faith in this moment was in great peril. And that's what he's telling us. As we progress through the psalm, we'll understand better why his faith was in great peril. Essentially, Asaph had a conviction in his heart about God's goodness, but when he looked in the world around him at his own personal life experience, he realized that his life experience contradicted his conviction, and it created a crisis of faith in his heart. There were two consequences to a spiritual crisis. The first was envy. We see that in verse 3. And the second was self-pity. We'll get there in a minute in verse 13. But let's look at envy first. Asaph says, For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And as we think about Asaph's envy, I want us to look at three small seemingly inconsequential words in verse 3. As I saw. Those are important words. You see, those represent Asaph's earthly perspective. In this moment, Asaph's vision was entirely horizontal. It was at the world and the prosperity of the wicked. He had lost his vertical perspective in this moment. Asaph had begun to think with his eyes and not with his head, and his thinking and his faith were being influenced by what he saw. Asaph said that he was envious. just want to do a quick reminder of what envy is. Envy is discontentment. Envy is dissatisfaction with your current circumstances, with the good that God has brought you. It is a wanting of the good that God has given to others. Envy always, always includes an element of doubting God. For it's God who providentially gave you the circumstances that you're in the midst of, And when you're dissatisfied with those and you want the circumstances of someone else, you're doubting in that moment God's providence. It's not clear who Asaph had in his vision. We don't know which people specifically he was thinking of or looking at, but we do know that he did not admire their character. In fact, he held them in great disdain. Beginning with verse 6, look at the way that Asaph describes the people who were in his vision. He said that they were prideful, violent. Verse 7, self-indulgent and lustful. Verse 8, he describes them as ruthless and oppressive to others. Verses 9 and 11, he thinks of them as haughty and arrogant toward God. I skipped over verse 10, not intentionally. It's a little bit of a difficult verse to understand and I'm going to read it. Verse 10 says, therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. Most commentators believe that verse 10 refers to the crowd that had begun to follow the prosperous in the world. And this seems like a likely interpretation to me, we know that in this world, evil and prosperity draw a crowd, and I'm confident that back then, evil and prosperity drew a crowd. Asaph wasn't envious of these people. He held them in disdain, but it is clear that Asaph was envious of their circumstances, Although they were wicked people, they were enjoying worldly prosperity. And Asaph was envious of that. These people were experiencing great prosperity. In verse 4, Asaph describes their body as fat. In that moment, he's not describing a physical condition of these people. He's describing their earthly wealth. They had great prosperity. They were abounding in prosperity in the offspring of their body, in the offspring of their beast, and in the produce of their ground. You see the conflict that Asaph was having in his mind? Those were promises God gave to the faithful, not to the wicked. Not only were they prosperous, but they also never, never seemed to suffer. They didn't encounter trouble. They weren't plagued like the rest of mankind. They didn't seem to suffer uh, adversity. In fact, Asaph, perhaps with a bit of hyperbole, says that they didn't even seem to experience pain and death. That's the life of ease that the wicked were leaving, leading. And so he concludes his thoughts as he looks at these people people in verse 12, and it's an apt summary of what Asaph observed when he looked at the world around him. He observed wicked people who were living a life of ease, who were prospering, and who were increasing in their prosperity. And it troubled his heart. Asaph was not only experiencing envy, but he was mired in self-pity as well. We see that beginning in verse 13. Verse 13, now for the second time in the psalm, begins with the word, surely. And it's amazing how Asaph's perspective has changed from verse 1 now to verse 13, where once he confessed a conviction about God's goodness. Now his certainty has been turned on its head, hasn't it? Now he was becoming convinced that his pursuit of a pure heart was vanity. For although he pursued godly attitudes, although he pursued godly deeds, all that he knew in his life experience was being stricken and chastened every day and every morning. Being careful... To obey God's commands is hard work, isn't it? It was hard work for Asaph. And in this moment, he wondered if it was all in vain. That brings us to the end of scene two or end of scene one. But before I move to scene two, I want to make a handful of observations about what we just saw. Um, First, about Asaph, Um, Before we judge him too quickly, Scripture is not clear how he was chastened or how he was being stricken. We don't know uh, the degree to which he suffered. It could have been intense suffering. And so our response to Asaph should be a response of patience. We don't want to be like Job's friends as we think about Asaph. Also, Asaph was asking questions That are common to man. Asaph was asking if God is good, if God is faithful, then why do the wicked prosper and why do the godly suffer? He's not the first man to ask that question and he won't be the last man. Job asked that question, didn't he? This was Job as he questioned God about the wicked. Job said, Why do the wicked still live? Why are their houses safe from fear? Why is the rod of God not on them? And of course we know that Job questioned God about his own suffering. He asked God, he said, Will you never turn your gaze away from me? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, O watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target? So, Asaph asked these questions, Job asked these questions. You and I frequently ask these same questions, don't we? Having said that, we must also recognize that at this point, Asaph's perspective was imbalanced. It was out of balance. He had a focus on and an envy of the worldly people around him. His vision had turned inward with a focus on self-pity about his own, cons- his own circumstances, and his perspective lacked a Godward perspective at this point. Last thought about scene one, and this point is key, this imbalanced perspective that Asaph had was causing him to think of God's goodness in what I describe as a transactional way. He thought of God's goodness in a transactional way. What do I mean by that? I think this is how Asaph, in the moment, was thinking about God's goodness. If I obey, God gives me prosperity. If I follow God's statutes, God gives me good health. You see, Asaph was asking, what did I get in return for my Obedience. His imbalance had also caused Asaph to redefine God's goodness more narrowly than he should have. See, Asaph looked at the circumstances of others and saw it as good, but he looked at his own circumstances in the moment and saw it as not good. So he had redefined God's goodness. Let's move on to scene two. Scene two is brief. It's only two and a half verses. It's transitional. It's at this moment that Asaph's perspective changes. And it's critical as well. Two and a half verses are packed with lots for us to understand and apply. As we read those verses together, the key elements include Asaph's concern for his fellow brothers and his seeking after God. So you can see those as we read that. I'll read those verses now. This starts in verse 15 and continues through verse 17a. Asaph says, "'If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children.'" When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. In verse 15, we learn a new character trait of Asaph's. We learn that he was an honorable man. You see, Asaph was a spiritual leader of his community he was vested with the mission of leading his people to celebrate God, to give thanks to God, and to praise God. And yet, as he stood before his people, trying to fulfill his mission statement, he was in the middle of a spiritual crisis. And in that moment, leading his people in thanksgiving of God, he was questioning himself whether God was in fact good. And he knew, and this is what he confesses in verse 15, that as a spiritual leader, he could not share that with his fellow brothers, lest he cause their feet to stumble and slip, lest he create spiritual doubt in their mind. And so he kept his struggle to himself. He was silent about it, but he continued to struggle. Scripture tells us that he continued to ponder and to try to understand God's promise of goodness. And he continued to be troubled by his contradictory life experience. Scripture doesn't tell us how long Asaph was troubled. We don't know if it was hours or days or weeks or months. We only know that it persisted for a period of time until that moment when he entered The sanctuary of God. And it was at that point that Asaph's perspective changed. It was at that point that his troubled heart knew peace again. It was at that point that his questions ceased, that his doubt was restored or removed, and that his conviction was restored. His crisis of faith was over. He entered the sanctuary of God and his crisis of faith ended. Scripture doesn't either, likewise, tell us much about his sanctuary experience. We don't know if Asaph was helped by a fellow brother who encouraged him and gave him wise counsel. We don't know if it was a time when Asaph looked into God's holy scriptures and found an answer. We don't know if it was a time of prayer when he cried out to God for help. We don't know any of that. Scripture's not clear about it, but this much is clear. The sanctuary was the dwelling place of God, the sanctuary was where God met with his people. The sanctuary was where God manifested his presence in the midst of his people, and so Asaph needed to change his perspective, and the sanctuary of God allowed him to do that. We need times in the sanctuary of God as well, don't we? In our humanness, we are easily influenced by what we see and by what we hear. And there are a multitude of influences in the world at work around us. The evening news, talk shows, the internet, social media, even friends and family members and co workers. All of these are influences. And in subtle ways, at different times, these influences seek to stir up thoughts in our mind and feelings in our heart that are not helpful. These thoughts and feelings can't always be trusted. Many times they create doubt. There are many times when they cause our faith to stumble. And, but God is gracious. God understands this, and God's given us protections. Those protections that God gives us are collectively our sanctuary. He's given us our, his word. He's given us access to himself through prayer. He's given us our church community. He's given us, as we've learned recently in Ephesians, pastors and teachers. And you see, all of those represent the sanctuary of God to us. And we must seek them out regularly, lest our perspective become imbalanced, lest we stumble and slip in our faith. Let me recap scene two. It's an important but a brief scene, and I want to make one point before we move on to scene three. In scene two, Asaph's perspective changes. Please see with me that this is always true of change in our lives. It was true of Asaph. It's true of us as we seek to change and become more Christ-like. Change always has these elements. We begin by taking our eyes off of the world. We begin by taking our eyes off of ourself, and we instead turn our eyes to others in concern for them and to God, looking for his counsel and wisdom. Those four things are all packed into scene two. They're important to see because change happens when those four things are true of us. Let's go to scene three. Scene three begins with verse 17b and continues until the end of the psalm. In scene three, Asaph has emerged from the sanctuary, and he's emerged with a changed perspective. He now has an eternal perspective of God's goodness. And in this scene, we'll see Asaph come both to a right understanding of the end of the wicked and a right understanding of God's goodness to the pure in heart. Let me read those verses together. Asaph says, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered, when I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. Like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me, and afterward, receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart, and He's the my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your good works. Asaph now clearly perceives the end of the wicked. And he begins for the third time in this psalm, verse 18, with the word, Surely now expressing his certainty about the judgment of the wicked. Asaph says about God, he says, Surely you set them in slippery places. You have cast the wicked down to destruction. Surely they are destroyed in a moment. Surely they are utterly swept away. Surely you will despise their form. Justice in this world is an elusive thing, isn't it? Generally, God governs the world under the principle of you shall reap what you sow. But it's a mistake to assume a one-to-one correlation where every evil act will immediately result in observable justice and consequence. That's a mistake. You see, in this world, wicked deeds are sometimes swiftly punished, Sometimes they're punished after a long delay, but sometimes evil prevails. Sometimes the wicked are judged, but sometimes the wicked prosper. Earlier in this psalm, we saw the wicked mocking God. How does God know, they said. You see, in that moment, the wicked misunderstood God's forbearance for God's ignorance. It comes with great peril to assume that God is ignorant. There is great peril to assume that God is universally benevolent. There is great peril to the one who assumes that justice will not ultimately be served. The certainty of God's judgment is clear in Scripture, it's clear in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's Examples only. Psalm 9 says this in the Old Testament about God's judgment. It says, "...but the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity." And in the New Testament, we read of God's judgment as well. This is from Revelation 20. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, no place was found for them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. The Bible clearly teaches that all people will face a judgment day. God is a God of justice, God is a sovereign judge, he may not have settled his accounts yet, but there is a day of reckoning coming when God will settle all accounts, and in the case of the wicked, those who are unfaithful to God, those who defy his commands, their judgment is certain. The outcome of their judgment is that they will be cast down to destruction. being in God's presence can sometimes lift us higher. At other times, being in God's presence results in a pierced heart. Asaph experienced both, and we see his pierced heart beginning in verse 21, where Asaph confesses to God his foolish behavior. He was a worship leader, And yet he understood that his own offering of worship to God had been lacking. And so he confesses that behavior to God. Have you ever experienced envy? Where you've looked at the circumstances of others and wished that you had those rather than your own? Have you ever experienced self-pity? Where you were dissatisfied or discontent with your circumstances. I know I have both been envious and pitied myself. In those moments, you and I are senseless. We're ignorant. We have an imbalanced perspective. In those moments, you and I are acting not like image bearers, but like brute beasts before God. Asaph's sanctuary experience not only gave him a clear perspective of the wicked, but it also restored his faith in God's goodness toward the pure in heart. As we consider the final six verses of this psalm, I want to start at the end. Look at verse 28a with me. Asaph says this about God's goodness in verse 28a. He says, but as for me, the nearness of God is my good. You see, as we noted before, Asaph's earthly perspective was a transactional perspective of God's goodness. But now we see his eternal perspective is a relational perspective, Once he was asking God, what have you done for me? That was looking for earthly good from God. Now he's rejoicing in who God is to him. He's rejoicing in the person of God. And he sees that his ultimate good is his relationship with and his nearness to God. His perspective had changed. I want to make one other observation to drive home just how dramatic of a change Asaph had gone through. In verses 2 through 16 of the psalm, this is following his statement of conviction of faith about God's goodness, but before his sanctuary experience, in those 15 verses of the psalm, God is only mentioned once. And the one time God is mentioned in those 15 verses, it's on the lips of the wicked who mock him. Asaph never mentioned God. But in these final six verses of the psalm, God, or pronouns that refer to God, appear 13 times. That is a change in perspective. God is at the center of Asaph's thoughts in this moment. So let's take a closer look at these final verses. Asaph begins in verse 23 by praising God for his continual presence. Is there ever a time when God is not with his children? God was continually with Asaph. He's continually with you and me. God is with us in the midst of prosperity. He's with us in the midst of poverty. God is with us in the midst of good health. He's with us when we're afflicted by disease. God is with us when we succeed, with us when we fail. He's with us in the midst of sorrow. He's with us in the midst of rejoicing. In fact, I think it's interesting But God is with us when our faith knows doubt. God is with us when our eyes know envy. God is with us when our heart knows self-pity. God is always present with us, and that is our ultimate good. It's what Asaph began to understand. How is God with us? Asaph gives us three ways that God is present with us. I call it God's holding presence, God's guiding presence, and God's receiving presence. First, God's holding presence. Asaph says, you have taken hold of my right hand. You see, there was a time when God figuratively reached down and grabbed Asaph and chose him as his own. And so now Asaph's confession is that of the familiar hymn When I fear my faith will fail, you will hold me fast. And then there's God's guiding principle. Asaph says, with your counsel you will guide me. And we know that to be true, right? God guides us throughout our walk of faith. He guided Asaph throughout his walk of faith. And importantly, God was guiding Asaph with his counsel in the midst of his doubting faith. And then finally, a look forward. Asaph praises God for his receiving Presence. He says, and afterward receive me to glory. This is in stark contrast to the end of the wicked, whom God casts down to destruction, but the faithful he receives into glory. Thinking of this future time when God would receive him into glory, Asaph asks this rhetorical question. He asks, whom have I in heaven but you? It's my favorite verse in the psalm. It was before, it still is now. It's a verse that really needs no further explanation. What is it that you long for most when you think of heaven? Is it the opportunity to have renewed fellowship with friends or family members who have gone before you? Is it the streets of gold? Or is it the eternal presence of God, your Redeemer? When Asaph wanted to seek the presence of God, he entered into a tent. It was a tent made of goat's hair and the skins of rams, there will be no tent in heaven. We read this in Revelation 21, beginning in verse 22, where it says, I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple, and the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. There will no longer be any curse in the throne of God, and of the Lamb will be in it. His bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. Heaven is many things, but heaven is principally one thing. Heaven is principally the eternal presence of God. Asaph continues, he says, And besides you I desire nothing on earth. Paul made the same confession, although Paul's words were somewhat more blunt. Paul said, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish. Rubbish. That I may gain Christ. Christian, is there anything on this earth that you would desire more than the presence of God? Would you and I really desire earthly trinkets that are going to perish rather than the eternal presence of the Lamb? And so the person of God had become Asaph's most cherished possession, more so than even his own life. He now understood that if his flesh and his heart had failed, even if he had died, that God would be his portion forever. And he concludes in the final two verses with summary statements, first about the unfaithful, and then lastly about the faithful. Who are the unfaithful? Verse 27 tells us that the unfaithful are those who are far from God. The unfaithful are those who have defied God's commands, who reject his ways. They are the wicked. They will be judged by their wicked deeds and they will perish and be destroyed. Who are the faithful? Again, verse 28 tells us that the faithful are those whom God is near. Those who have made the Lord God their refuge, those who are devoted to God and in devotion seek to have a pure heart before him. The faithful are those whom God has grasped their hand, those whom God is guiding by his counsel, and one day will receive into glory. The unfaithful are those whom God will personally reject one day. The faithful are those whom God will personally receive. Derek Kidner wrote a commentary on Psalm 73 that has been immensely helpful to my understanding of the psalm, and I'm going to close our time together before I give some applications. I'm going to close our time together with some thoughts that he had about the psalm. I think they're a fitting close. Derek Kidner writes this, he says, From this vantage point, the psalmist can look back at his fretting and jealousy and see them truly envious of the arrogant, but they are doomed. All in vain, my godliness? I possess the chief and only good, which is to be near God. So, whereas at one point the best thing he could do was to keep his thoughts to himself, now his lips were open in praise. And in the light of his discovery, we turn back to his first exclamation with new understanding. Truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart. I have three minutes left, and I'm going to squeeze in three applications in that time. Uh, My applications are on the back of your handout, if you turned that over. So many good applications in this psalm. My first one is this be careful how you think about God's goodness. And I want to take this application and think of it in two ways, comparatively and ultimately. Uh, From a comparative perspective, is prosperity good? Is it better to have little means? If God gives one faithful man a life of adversity, but another faithful man a life of ease, are not both good? And ultimately, God gives his children good things. This we know to be true. And we should each be thankful for the good things that God has given us in this earth. Right down for me personally to the cup of coffee that I enjoyed to start this morning. I am thankful for those earthly things. But my principal good and your principal good is the nearness of God, it is the nearness of the persons of the triune God who is present with us through all earthly circumstances and for all eternity, that is our greatest good. Application two, be careful of earthly allurements and your five senses. Be careful. We are spiritual beings. This is true. But we are also human beings with five senses that are easily influenced by the things around us. We need to learn from Asaph who saw the things of the world and it distorted how he thought and felt about God's goodness. The same was true of Eve who saw that the fruit was good and a delight to her eyes and it distorted how she thought and felt about God's goodness. So be careful of your five senses. And last, be faithful to enter the sanctuary of God regularly. I speak from personal experience. It takes but a short season away from the sanctuary of God to have your perspective change in a way that you don't want it to change. God understands that. He understands that we are easily influenced and that we live in a world of evil influences. And so he has given us a sanctuary of protections for us. Those protections are designed to keep our thoughts and feelings aligned with his truth. We should be faithful to enter his sanctuary regularly. Let me close in prayer. Father, I am so thankful for Psalm 73 and for the truths that you've given us in this psalm. I pray that you would help me, and I pray that you would help each of us, Father, to take the truths of these lives and to apply them to our hearts. We thank you most of all, Father, that you are near to the faithful. Uh, that you guide us, that you hold us, and that you will one day receive us into glory. And we give you thanks for that promise. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.